Hi there, this is Darren Spoo, pastor at First Baptist Church in Tulsa, and welcome to our weekly message podcast. We would invite you to join us in person Sunday morning at 8.30 and 11 o'clock in downtown Tulsa, or check out our webpage at tulsafbc.org. God bless you, and have a great week. So as we're getting closer to Easter, I want you to consider this an opportunity for you to come back to worship. We are at that point now where the COVID numbers are incredibly low. We hope they stay that way. I know there's a new variant. There will always be a new variant. But if you are still watching at home, I would encourage you to set a date at that time at which you will return to worship. We are made to worship God. We are made to live in community. We are made to serve other people. And when we isolate, even for good reasons, it does not do our soul good. And I think we all kind of feel the emotional and mental toll of the last couple of years. So maybe that date is Easter Sunday, April 17th. We're going to have three services that morning to give a little extra room, 8.30, 9.45, 11 o'clock. Or maybe it's right after Easter. Maybe the big Easter crowds freak you out just a little bit. Let me encourage you that after Easter, we're going to talk about two big emotions that, that our culture is dealing with right now, anxiety and anger. And so after Easter and as we work through this summer, we're going to be dealing with those emotions from the Scripture to allow the Holy Spirit to do what He does best, and that is to change us from the inside out. But for now, as we approach Easter, we're doing a little teaching series called Near the Cross. And if you're with us on Sunday morning as we gather to worship, we're singing that old hymn, Near the Cross. And, and I have a little story. There's a, a, that story, uh, excuse me, that song holds a very special place for me. About 10 years ago, my mentor, Calvin Miller, passed away. And he had two funerals. One was in Alabama. That was the public funeral where he worked and where he lived. But then his second funeral was back home in Enid, Oklahoma, where he is from. And because I'm in Tulsa, Calvin's family called me and said, listen, we're doing two funerals. we got a lot on our plate. Could you just plan and take care of the Oklahoma memorial service? And it was a privilege and an honor to do that. And so I lined up some friends and family members to speak. I selected the music, and I really didn't know what songs to choose well, late one night, just a few days before that memorial service, I got up in the middle of the night, I woke up, and a hymn was buzzing in my head. Now, real quick, I wake up as a pastor, not just hymns are buzzing in my head, sometimes it's Led Zeppelin, sometimes it's Bon Jovi, but on this night, it happened to be a hymn near the cross. And I thought, you know, I've always liked that hymn, Let's, I'll, I'll put that in as one of the songs. And so we sang it at Calvin's memorial service. Afterwards, his wife came to me and she said, I don't know how you chose the music that you did, but Near the Cross was the very song that Calvin's mother used to sing over him when he was a baby boy. You know, I don't know what to make of all that still today, but I, I call it just a small grace, small grace of God during a time of mourning. And that's the song that we're singing together over this season, Near the Cross. And we're looking at the people in Luke 23 who were so near to the cross that either they did touch the cross, as in Simon of Cyrene and the soldiers that put Jesus there, or they were so close that they could have touched the cross, including the criminals that were crucified on either side of Jesus. They were right there. And so we pick up the account from Luke 
chapter 23, starting in verse 38, there was written above him a notice that says, this is the king of the Jews. And I pointed out last week that the way Luke phrases that title, it's literally king of the Jews, this one. Would you look up from your life for just a moment and realize that there is a king of the universe. His name is Jesus Christ, king of the Jews, this one. So one of the criminals who hung there beside Jesus hurled insults at him, and aren't you the Messiah? Save us and yourself. So just for a moment, I want to talk about these criminals. We're not told exactly what they did that landed them here on the cross. Kind of our Christian verbiage that we've used over the years is that they were thieves. We, we don't know what they did, but what they did landed them here, so it must have been pretty bad. 2014, there was a man who walked into Xi'an International Airport and bought a ticket on China Eastern Airlines. It was a first-class ticket, which gave him access to go in to the VIP lounge of the International Airport and eat a meal. So he went in and ate a meal. Afterwards, he came back out, and he went to the counter agent, and he changed his ticket for the next day, went back home, came back the next day, walked into the VIP lounge, ate a meal, left the VIP lounge, rebooked his ticket for the next day. He did that 300 times for nearly a year. The man went to the airport every day, enjoyed a nice meal, rebooked his ticket. And only after he had rebooked 300 times did somebody finally raise a red flag and say, this guy is just working the system. Well, you know what they did to him? Nothing. They didn't do anything to him because what he did really wasn't illegal but they made him refund the ticket. He got his full money back, plus about a year's worth of food, and he got away with it, right? Well, that's not how Rome worked. <laughs> these guys, these criminals, they were about to be victims of the system. In fact, they'd probably been in the system before, and they'd been in the system for a long time, and Rome had a way of executing, literally executing justice. There was no letting them off. They were going to give them a one-way ticket, non-refundable, into the next life. Isn't that just kind of the way the world works? The world is really not a place of second chances. The world is really not a place of grace. As Martin Marty once put it, he said, we live in a world where everything is permitted but nothing is forgiven. So these criminals are there on either side of Jesus, and they are hurling insults at him. Well, at least one of them is. So now here's where we get a little bit of, not contradiction, we, we get a little bit of discontinuity from the Gospels, because Matthew and Mark say both of the criminals hurled insults at Jesus. And here, as we'll find out in just a moment, only one criminal was hurling insults at Jesus, and the other would defend Jesus. So which one is right? And I would contend that both are. You know, if you've ever overheard a conversation, you might just hear the beginning of it but not the end, or the end of it and not the beginning. And so Matthew and Mark focus on the first part of the conversation, I believe, where both criminals are railing against Jesus, save yourself and us. But sometime during the six hours that Jesus spent on the cross, because it takes us about 90 seconds to read this, but these were hours that went by. One criminal began to have a change of heart. One of the mantras I use in life is, the story's not over yet. 
as I hear people, you know, students who might grow up in this ministry and they go away and they, they lose sight and lose touch with God, story's not over yet. As somebody gets into addiction, uh, I like the way St. Augustine defined addiction. He said, addiction is when we end up serving something that is meant to serve us. We end up, people ended up addicted to something and, and they get into a really dark place and say, well, the story is not over yet. Whenever one of us has a child that goes a long, long way from God, the story's not over yet. It's not over till it's over. And so this criminal here on the cross somewhere during these six hours has an epiphany. And we're going to go through what he says here in just a moment. But one criminal doesn't change his heart, and one does. It's, it's interesting that these two men were in the very same situation with two very different results. The criminal who is insulting Jesus, who continues to insult him even up into death, he just makes demands. Save yourself and us. Here's something really great that I've heard lately. It's easier to be angry than it is to be sad. We just kind of soak on that for just a minute. Because here this man apparently is angry at Jesus. But could it be that he's just sad? He's sad at what his life has become. He's sad that his life is about to end. He is sad that maybe at the foot of the cross there is no one there to keep watch over him. No friend, no family. And it's easier to be angry than to admit that you're sad. Well, that has a lot to say to our lives, doesn't it? But the other criminal, instead of making demands, he takes responsibility. He takes responsibility exactly for where he is. And I want to give you, this is really kind of my best thought for today. So if you hear nothing else, just hear this. You're not responsible for what happens to you in life. Now, sometimes we are responsible that, you know, things happen, there are consequences, but if you look at the broad sweep of your life, we really have very little control as to what happens to us. So you're not responsible for what happens to you in, in life, but you are responsible for what happens to you does to you. Let me say that again because you can kind of get lost in all of that. And, and this is a broad brushstroke statement. It's not true in every situation, but you're not responsible for what happens to you. Life happens. But you are responsible for what happens to you does to you. How you respond to that. And we see here two men in the same situation, one responding in anger that's really sadness in disguise, and the other responding in repentance. And it's what this second criminal says instinctively intuitively that is instructive for us. I want to listen very carefully to what he says here. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are being punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. I would contend that this criminal here, again, very instinctively, intuitively, he says some things that teach us about when we get into a place that we can't control what happens to us, but we can control what happens to us, what it does to us. And very instinctively, he, he looks in three directions. First, he looks at God. Don't you fear God? 
So I don't know where you are in your journey with God or toward God or away from God. You know, I feel like I spend a lot of my ministry trying to talk people into believing that God exists, and there's no way to prove it. It's something we have to accept by faith. But the closest I've come to being able to say, here's a, not a proof, here's a a compelling hint that God exists. Every desire that we have in our lives points to a reality. For instance, my hunger points to the reality that there's something called food. My thirst points to the reality that there's something called water. I can say, I don't need air, but if I hold my breath for a couple of minutes, my desire is going to point to the reality of oxygen. I believe in all of us, and sometimes it's been buried very deep. There's a desire to be loved unconditionally. That's something no human is capable of doing. And so this desire to be loved unconditionally may point us to the reality that there is someone who can do that, and he is God. So do you fear God? So he says, he looks at God, don't, don't you fear God? And then he, then he looks at himself, the criminal does. Well, first he looks at he and his partner in crime. You know, we're getting what our, our sins deserve. We're getting what our deeds have done to us. He takes a good look at himself, and he takes responsibility. Again, you can't control what happens to you, but you do have a choice about what happens to you, what it does to you. I wonder how much of the busyness in our culture, always staying busy, always on the move, always having something new to look at, I wonder how much of it is because we're afraid of being alone with ourselves. When is the last time you've really taken a look at yourself, and I want to give you a dare? Go into a room sometime today, leave your phone outside, turn off the computer, silence the radio, unplug the television, and see how long you can just sit in a room by yourself and take a good look at who you are. My thought is that if you've never done that before, number one, it's scary. Uh, every time I go to the monastery for a three-day silent retreat, I'm by myself, no electronics, there's always a little bit of fear in going there because I'm going to be stuck with myself. Here, maybe for the first time in his life, this guy looked at himself. Jacques Plot is a, uh, an old hockey player, old professional hockey player. He came off the ice one day after a particularly bad uh, performance, and he said, how would you like it if your job, every time you made a mistake, a big red light went off, uh, a buzzer sounded, and 18,000 people booed? Would you like that job? No, none of us would. But part of taking responsibility for our lives is seeing who we really are right here, right now. But that's not the end of it. Because this criminal looked at God. He looked at himself. And then he looked right at Jesus. So here is the greatest compelling reason to come to Christ. Okay? Because we need him. You know, I'm, I'm convinced our prayer lives would be totally transformed, not, not on how do we pray better, but when we have a need, nobody needs to tell us to pray. I believe our relationship with God would be totally transformed if we just recognized our deep need for Him. I'm going to give two C.S. Lewis quotes today, but here's, here's the first one. I think I like this best. Oh, by the way, the word for the week is the word 
Prig, P-R-I-G. This is in the C.S. Lewis quote. I had to look it up. It means to be fussy about small things in a self-righteous or an irritating manner. Do you know a prig? I just love saying that word. Sometimes I see the prig in myself. C.S. Lewis says this, the cold, self-righteous prig who is always in church may be far nearer hell than a prostitute. But then he says this at the end. But of course, it's better to be neither. (laughs) Didn't Jesus say the same thing? that, That a person who understands their sinfulness is far closer to the kingdom of heaven than a self-righteous person who has no need. It could be that this criminal we're reading about right here has come far nearer to understanding who Jesus really is than a lot of church people who've been in church their whole lives who have great theology but a dead heart. Need. So flowing out of that need comes a prayer and a promise. Believe it or not, this criminal prays on the cross. He talks to Jesus. And so in a way, it is a a prayer. He says this in verse 42. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's an odd prayer, don't you think? But he's done asking for things. He just asks for a relationship. He doesn't even worry about the titles, king of the Jews, and all of that. that. That mockery is in his past. He sees Jesus now as a very different person. And he uses that personal name. There's a personal relationship. There's an eminence about it. And then he says, remember me. He doesn't ask for anything. He doesn't ask to be saved uh, from, the, from the cross. He just says, remember me. This is a prayer of absolute surrender. Jesus, whatever happens next, would you think of me? And then whatever you want to do with me is fine in my book as long as you're happy with it. You know, it's a glorious place to get to that place of surrender in your relationship with God that you stop asking for things and you just stop, start asking for God. God, I just want you. It's a beautiful place. So that's a prayer and then a promise. Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. So theologians have parsed every syllable, every bit of punctuation from this sentence, trying to, trying to strain out every little truth that we can, and sometimes we get so caught up in, in all of that, that that we lose the big picture. And here's the big picture, and I can kind of sum it up, just a handful of statements. No one's ever too lost. No one is ever too lost. In fact, when Jesus says paradise, he actually uses a Persian loan word that means garden. Paradiso in Latin, we've brought it into English as, as paradise. So he uses this word that goes all the way back to the Persians and, and even beyond that means a garden. Does that remind anybody of Genesis 1, 2, and 3? And it's interesting, when God came into the garden looking for Adam and Eve, he didn't come in looking for their sin. He came in looking for a relationship. And that's all that Jesus wants with you. And no one is ever too lost. Second little truth from this is death is not the end. I have people ask me all the time, you know, what's heaven like? What, what could it be? There's a lot of speculations. You can read books. Sometimes people think that heaven's going to be real boring like a church service that doesn't end. You know, nobody wants that. 
I often describe heaven as the perfect moment. And I think about the birth of my kids or the first time I kissed my future wife or a thousand other moments where I want to take in everything about this moment and hope that it never ends, but it always does. What is heaven? It's that perfect moment that never ends. No one's ever too lost. Death is not the end. And the best is yet to come. Can I quote C.S. Lewis one more time? At the end of the Chronicles of Narnia, all seven books, most people have read The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, but they haven't read all the way through to the last battle. He says this, and he talks about the, the children of Narnia. He says, all their life in this world and all of their adventures had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. This is my invitation to you today to know Jesus Christ. And you know what? If that's no big deal to you, it could be that you're not in need yet. But if you are, following Christ and giving your life to Him will be a pretty easy thing because your need needs a Savior. And the promise is not about heaven, not getting to go someplace nice when I die. The promise is about a person. It's about a relationship with the God who created you and who saved you in Jesus Christ and a relationship that will be like that perfect moment that never has to end. Jesus, maybe this is your prayer. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Father, so often I feel like I'm trying to talk people into following Jesus. Maybe you're working in the lives of people. You're, I don't need to talk them into it. There, there's already the need right there. And the next step is up to them. I pray for boldness and conviction, compassion from you. Thank you that no one is ever too lost. Thank you that death is not the end. And thank you that the best is yet to come. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and grant you peace, both now and forever. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to our weekly message podcast. At the end of each worship service on Sunday morning, I offer a simple blessing, and I offer that blessing to you today. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. And may God grant you peace, both now and forever. Amen.